For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Beaulieu. Former world surfing champion Sean Thompson is all about riding the wave of positivity and purpose, regardless of what life throws your way. The South Africans acclaimed CODE method, a self-development program built around 12 promises that individuals write and share, is designed to activate internal strength to help people find meaning in their lives, success, and personal fulfillment. Named one of the 10 greatest surfers of all time, Sean has worked with some of the world's best-known companies, including GM, Cisco, Google, and Disney, to empower purpose and reactivate their teams. He has also created, managed, and sold two market-leading clothing brands, Instinct and Solitude. Author of three inspirational books, Sean's latest tome, The Surfer and the Sage, A Guide to Survive and Ride Life's Waves, uses surfing as a metaphor to illustrate how to overcome life's obstacles. Sean joins me to discuss his latest book, The Code Method, his work with brands, and the importance of having a personal purpose. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Ken, it's great to be on, and I love the work you guys are doing uh, around purpose. Uh, you know, I really think that that purpose, in the context of business, is certainly, I think, the new profit. John, congratulations on on the new book. It's a it's a terrific read, and it's filled um, with great insights and best practices and inspiration. When when you look back at your surfing career, was there a particular lesson that you shared in your book that really stood out the most? Well, thank you for the the compliments uh, about the book. My co-author was No Ben Shea, who's a Pulitzer-nominated writer, philosopher, poet. So it was wonderful to to work together with him and have his uh, have his perspective. But but when I think of you know what what is the being the, perhaps the single most fundamental lesson that surfing has has taught me um, about life and about success, performance, uh, well being. It, it sort of encapsulated in one line of, of something I wrote a couple of decades ago, and it was called Surface Code. And in 12 lines, I wrote down a series of commitments, every single line beginning with I will. And really, it was the fundamental lessons that surfing had taught me about life. I will never turn my back on the ocean. I will realize that all surfers are joined by by one ocean. You use that word metaphor. And yes, my latest book's a metaphor, but that surface code that I read so many years ago was a metaphor as well. And one of the lines of the 12, which I think is perhaps the most significant of all because it operates on a number of different levels is I'll always paddle back out. So obviously on the one level, one would think, well, well, it's like falling off a horse and getting back up on a horse and riding it, uh, having a bad wipeout and paddling, jumping back on your board and, and paddling back out. And I illustrate in my very first book called Surface Code, which was an exploration of those 12 lines, I illustrate every single one of those codes and, and why I wrote, I'll always paddle back out. And I write about a terrible wipeout that I had, maybe the worst wipeout of my life at a place called Waimea Bay during one of the biggest surfing contests in the world at that time. And I was sort of a rookie. And uh, the first time I'd ever surfed it, I was on a borrowed surfboard in really, really treacherous conditions. In those days, there was no lifeguards or jet skis or you weren't attached to your board by a leash. I mean, you, you, you were really on your own. So the risk factor was was greatly magnified. So yes, there is an aspect of perseverance and resilience in that statement. I'll always paddle back out. But underlying that is hope. There's this 
aspect of hope that only by paddling back out again will you catch the next wave. And it's that hope that drives you forward to paddle back out after you've had a, a humbling situation or you've had a failure or you've had a loss or you've had a you know, a, a time of grief that paddling back out is, is the way to find that next wave. So I really love that statement. And that, for me, has always been you know, fundamental, I think, to surfing and to the life experience, that hope, that optimism, that there's going to be another way, there's going to be another opportunity, there is going to be a way that we can get better and have a good experience and, and, and find happiness and, and find love again, no matter what. Can that word hope also be extended to the business world? I mean, do you feel that there is hope for brands to be more meaningful as we move forward? Absolutely. You know, I was always through my career, I always tried with my brands to represent positivity. I mentored and sponsored many, many young surfers. And I, I was, I was, uh, I mean, I'm very grateful. I was, I was able to help two young Australian surfers realize their dreams. One young kid, Tom Carroll, became a world champion twice when I sponsored him. Another Australian, Barton Lynch, became a world champion uh, when I sponsored him while I was competing against him. In fact, uh, one of the years on, on the tour, Tom and I led the tour the whole year and Tom was second the whole year. And then right at the end of the year, he, uh, he passed me. But it was wonderful to be purposeful. And this was in the area before business was expected to be purposeful. It was expected to generate profit sales and growth. And then a big turning point for me is after I sold my first brand, I had a brand called Instinct, which was very popular. And uh, after I sold it, when I retired, I went and I worked for Patagonia. I worked for Yvonne Chouinard for a couple of years. And That's just terrific. I just had a wonderful experience there. And, you know, the first time I walked into Patagonia, when I walked there, went there for an interview, I mean, I'm the first guy I believe that's ever been hired at Patagonia that had never, ever heard of the brand. I knew nothing about the brand. A friend of mine who lived in Santa Barbara, which is right near the HQ, it's 20 miles from there, said to me, hey, Sean, I'd gone over to, to I'd come to America. I'd been living in South Africa after I retired and I was coming looking for a position because we wanted to leave South Africa. South Africa was going through a period of extreme volatility. And, and this friend of mine said, hey, Sean, you've got to check out this little company in Ventura. It's called Patagonia. And I went, Patagonia, what do they do? He said, he said they make cool fleecy jackets. Mm -hmm. I went, wow, the only Patagonia I know is a mountain range in Chile. So I went down there and the first thing I saw as I walked into the HQ was a school that abutted the HQ. And I said to the guys, hey, what's with the school? He said, no, it's a school. It's our school for our team members. So that was my first experience with creating an environment that was beyond profit, sales and growth. And then, you know, I, I interacted a lot with Yvonne while I was, while I was there. I, I was the director for the apparel division, which was the single biggest revenue contributor to the business. It was a pretty small business then. They were doing about a 156 million. Um, and they, they, they did not have the, they didn't have the widespread appeal. It was a very much of a niche brand that was focused in the outdoor business. It, it, it hadn't transcended and it hadn't gone through into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And uh, Yvonne, you know, he, he would write these things, like these 50-year plans for the company. And I remember we were putting together the strategic plan, and I don't know, I was getting tossed with like, okay, well, what's the mission? Let's, let's just encapsulate the mission, Yvonne. And he sends this thing back to me, 
to change the world. Now, they were doing 156 million, a tiny company in the context of these global uh, uh, competitors like, you know, Gap and, and, you know, all these other groups. But he still had this clear vision. And he'd say to me, hey, Sean, they'd have these little philosophy sessions. Hey, Sean, you got to understand, doing good is good for business. This was before sustainability, all this greenwashing crap that you read about, that every brand is supposedly sustainable and they're, you know, they're, they're doing the right thing. This was belief structure. And this belief structure, I think, permeated through the walls of that building and deeply into the culture. And everyone was imbued with this very, very egalitarian spirit in terms of interconnectivity with one another, but also interconnectivity with the broader world, with the, with the environment, and wanting to do the right thing for people and for the planet. And it was beautiful to be there and, and work there for, for two years. And then, and then uh, I, I left after two years, and my wife and I started a, a new brand. We called it Solitude, and we really used a lot of the elements and philosophies that I learned at, at, at Patagonia, and it was beautiful opportunity. And, and that company is what it is. Mm-hmm. He is who he is. There's no BS. There's no subterfuge. There's no greenwashing. Let me tell you, straight. Thank you for sharing that story. I, I forgot about the fact you had worked for Patagonia. That's, that's terrific. Sean, in your latest book, you pay tribute to your father for overcoming a time of despair. And I believe it was a shark attack, if memory serves me correct. So can you just share that story with our listeners and the valuable lesson that you learned as a young man? Yes, uh, I will. He was a very powerful figure in in my life. He was a man of honor and integrity. You know, he, he, he would say, Sean, your word is your bond. Uh, when you lose, lose like a man. And when you win, win like a gentleman. You know, he had an ethos about sport that was was very sort of like the Olympian um, ideal. He said, there's nothing worse in life than someone that cheats at sport. Mm-hmm. So sport had this sort of, it, 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 it was almost, you know, the sort of Olympian uh, vibe. And in his youth, he was a terrific sportsman. He was a South African junior swimming champion at 13 years old. You know, his dream was to represent his country in the Olympics. The Second World War intervened. He went and fought against the Nazis and the, and the fascists in Italy. He was a tail gunner uh, in, in, in bombers. They, you know, they, they were bombing the fascists and the, and the Nazis. Um, and then he came back and then started training for the London Olympics that were coming up, 1948 London Olympics. And uh, he was out there in the water. He was a surfer too, and on a little wooden surfboard. And this shark came up underneath him. They called them Zambezi sharks in South Africa. It's like a pit bull of sharks. You know, great white sharks are incredibly dangerous, but the Zambezi is more dangerous. It's just, it's just very aggressive, very, you know, they call it a man-eater. And it hit him so hard, it lifted him right up into the water, right up into the air, and in one bite nearly bit off his right arm. Didn't bite it off, but it just shredded it to the bone. And all his friends deserted him, left him out there. And, you know, with this black fin circling, you know, and many years later, when I asked him about the attack, he very seldom spoke about it. I said, Daddy, Daddy, what happened to the shark? And he said, oh, you don't have to worry about the shark. It died of blood poisoning. 
<laughs> so my dad looked at Sorry, was. No, but they, they, he was eventually rescued, and it was a very, very long period of, of, of recuperation. But you know, he was never going to swim in the Olympics again. You, you know, he could barely use his his right arm. But you know, my father never ever had this feeling of bitterness and this feeling of what might have been. And I never ever heard him talk about regret or what if I hadn't gone for a swim that day or what if life had turned out differently. He was a terrific poker player. My dad, he loved to play cards. And I think perhaps he just had that philosophy of this is how, this this is the cards I've been dealt. Mm-hmm. And this is how I'm going to play, play my life forward. And, you know, he became this wonderful mentor for me and for hundreds of other young children on the beach, uh, inspiring people. He created the very first and the world's longest running professional surfing event. So he was such a wonderful uh, mentor for me um, in my athletic uh, uh, career. And now I, I try to encourage other people, you know, to when they think about athletics, yes, Win, win like a gentleman, lose like a man. He would say to me, Sean, the judges, because surfing is subjectively judged. So sometimes you think, well, you've won and, and the judge's decision goes the other way. He said, never, ever complain about a decision. That judge's decision is inscribed in stone. You will never change it. You will just embarrass yourself and embarrass your family. Accept it. Move on. W- which I think is, um, is a wonderful way to live, accept it, mm-hmm. move on. Don't get caught up in the whole world of would have, should have, could have, what if. Just accept the reality and move forward. Sean, you also overcame a time of deep despair with the loss of your son. How did his passing change your own purpose in life? Yeah, that was a dreadful time for my wife and I. I uh, imagine. I mean, we've been, we've been married now for 35 years and we, we love each other very much and and Many relationships after the loss of a, of a child will break up. I mean, I, th- I think a husband and a wife, they deal with grief differently. And you deal with it separately, but you also deal with it together. And for me, there were certain things that I found that, that really helped me. And, and for anyone that perhaps might, might, might be listening, is, is I'm just giving you my perspective. I, I don't give prescriptions. I just give the perspective. But what helped me, and perhaps this is something that you know I'd learned from my dad and watching what had happened to him, is you have to accept the reality of the situation, the what is, not the what if. Mm-hmm. Because once you start thinking about the what if, then you start blaming. And that blame, I think, can be a cancer and it can destroy a, a relationship. I think you also have to be absolutely and unconditionally forgiving of whatever led up to or whatever happened during that situation, not just of others, but yourself too. There has to be this absolute forgiveness. When I say there has to be, for me, there had to be a reconnection to my faith. I'm Jewish, uh, but whatever your faith might be, whether you're Muslim, Hindu, Christian, Catholic, that, that connectivity to faith really helps you not make sense of it, but it does give you internal support. I would sit in front of my old synagogue where I had my bar mitzvah and I'd look up and they had this uh, right above in every synagogue in the world, 
they have the Torah, it's called the, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and right above it, there's a light. It's called Ner Tamid. It means the everlasting light. And that really is a symbol of, of hope. And, and that was a symbol of, of hope for me. So I think you connect with your faith. And then uh, I think you need to connect with your nature and your passion. For me, it took me a long time to go surfing again. But, but when I did, I felt that it really helped me. And then just walking along the beach, mm-hmm. connecting to nature. And then um, relationships, your wife, your friends, your family, you know, make sure that when people offer help, you take the help. That's super important, that, that, that you know, relationship and that um, connectivity and, that, and that, really, that really helped me. And then um, get involved with projects that can make a difference. So for me, I had a book, book at the publisher and I really spent a lot of time promoting this new book, Surface Code, because this book was, and, and I wrote a last chapter about my son. This book was about my son's memory. I made a film called Busting Down the Door, which, which became very um, popular. But these projects were very inspirational projects. So, so doing that, I think, really helped me and, you know, helped me find my purpose. And, and I realized that, that my purpose is to inspire and to activate purpose in others through what I've learned, through, through my code method. And then, lastly, learn. I went back to university. I went back and did a master, a master of science in leadership because I became fascinated about influence and inspiration, how I can use my talents to influence and inspire others, how I can use my perspective, how I can use uh, the hardship that, that I've endured to, to help others. So, you know, I, I, okay, so I've outlined five or six different mm-hmm. uh, different things that you can do, but that, that's what, that, what, that is what has helped me deal with grief, make sense of it, and then go down this new path and this new wave of purpose. Well, you mentioned being an inspiration and that shines through in the code method um, that you developed, um, you know, to help folks um, become more purposeful, lead more positive lives. Can you just, just describe to our listeners how that tool works in the benefits, especially like in times like these right now. Yes, it's it's such a it's such a I think a wonderful wonderful tool. It's transformational. Uh, a dean of a very famous university here on, on the west coast, they studied the method at their graduate school, and he said, "Sean, it's the most transformation transformational personal development method we've ever ever studied." And it's so simple and it's free. It's it's open source code. That's what I call it. <laughs> The code was an outgrowth from surface code, these 12 lines that I'd written decades ago to inspire a group of young people that were coming to this beach, this famous beach in Santa Barbara called Rincon that was facing an environmental challenge. So this friend of mine said, Sean, you know, we need to activate consciousness of this issue. I want you to inspire these kids. I'm going to bring media down. So I wrote those 12 lines. And then I wrote my first book around that. And then after I lost... uh, after I lost our son, Matthew, uh, and the book came out and I was started speaking at, at, at schools, universities, large corporations. I spoke at a little school here in Santa Barbara. I, I met the headmaster in the water at, while surfing at Rincon, the break that actually inspired the, inspired the card. And he said, oh, Sean, I'd love you to come and talk to my kids. I only have 80 kids in my school. It's a very small school. So when I was chatting to the kids about the code, I said, you know, surface code was my code. I wrote it in 15 minutes. 
12 lines, 105 words, every line beginning with I will. What about what if you writing your own codes? What about you writing down your purpose? Because this is a simple way to find and define your purpose. 12 lines, every line begins with I will. Just write it in 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's the code method. So the very first line of code I got back from a young girl, she was 13 at the time. Her name was Elena Alcera. I will always be myself. I will always be myself. So for anyone that's listening that has a parent, that's a parent, you know the terrible challenges that our young people are faced with every single day. Mm-hmm. Social media, drugs, bullying, victimization, peer pressure, all sorts of terrible things that young people have to deal with. Life is far more dangerous today than it was in, in my youth. But this young girl was putting her flag in the sand and making that powerful statement, I'll be myself. I'm not going to be pushed around. I'm not going to be a victim of peer pressure. I'm not going to be bullied. And those words were especially pertinent to me because my wife and I had lost our son, Matthew, because he played a dangerous game that he heard about at school called the choking game. And it's just, it's this most dreadful game and it pops up on TV all the time. And I actually hate to talk about it because you don't really want to bring publicity to it because mm-hmm. it's insane that it sort of goes around schools and all the kids wore school ties and he played it with his school time and it was just dreadful. So um, when this young girl wrote those words and then all the other young kids sent me their codes, it was 80 kids, I got about a thousand lines of code back. I was so stoked by what, what I'd gotten back and these, these words, I'll have faith, I'll pray. Then I immediately found my co-author, Patrick Moser, who had written Surface Code. I said, Patrick, we're going to do another another book. And this book is going to be aimed at teens and it's going to be built around activating positive decision-making amongst young people. And it was 12 chapters. Every chapter title came from a student with I'll Be Myself, the very first one. And the book became became popular. And, and, and then I started telling people, why don't you write your code? And I started it at schools and university, and then I started it at corporate events and big corporate events, thousands of people. And I'd get people, and also small corporate events. If it was a small, if it was a group, 50 or under, people stand up and they read it to their peer group. They'll read their 12 lines. And I would say 25% of the people cry when they do it because it is such a vulnerable process when people are actually telling everyone in that group not just who they are, but who they will be. I will be a better father. No one has ever written, I will hit my third quarter goal, ever. (laughs) No one. Because our fundamental purpose is not defined by numbers. It's not defined by numbers. So people stand up and they read this, and not only is it a statement of hope, power, optimism, but it's also about accountability. When you make this statement in front of others, you are accountable. And also, it's connectivity. It connects people to one another at a deeply emotional level because people are very, very vulnerable now. And they're, they're, they're talking about this, the, the sort of essence of their life. And, and what I've discovered during this process is everyone only writes two lines of code. And every single code that people write, their 12 lines, are generally divided into two groups, but at only two lines. So this is 
what I've seen as to what the meaning of life is, what our fundamental life purpose is, mm-hmm. I will be better. So we have this genetic compulsion to be better. We want to be lifelong learners. We want to be better fathers. We want to be better team members. We, 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 we want to do what we say we want to do. We want to be, live a life of integrity. We want to you know, be moral. We want to get closer to our faith. So we want to be better. And the second line that people write is, I will help others be better. So we are not just sole captains of this ship with a crew of one. We are in this together, and it's wonderful to see and for people to realize that we want to be a mentor. We want to lift others up. We want to volunteer. We want to do something good for the planet. And and it's just beautiful. It's amazing. And everyone gets connected. Everyone gets connected together. And we all ride this positive wave together to use a surfing metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Hey there, Beyond Profit listener. The ANA CMO-endorsed industry growth agenda plays an important role in driving more purposeful and ethical marketing. In fact, it supports the key priorities of marketers throughout the world, including sustainability, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and brand safety. To learn more, please visit ana.net slash growth agenda. And now, back to the show. I am speaking today with Sean Thompson, a Hall of Fame surfer, writer, and entrepreneur. Sean, um, what are some of the issues that hinder business performance and relationship building of which the code method can solve? Well, I think disconnection, I think, is is a fundamental issue. The media um, and the political climate and former political leaders and current political leaders have created this divisive, divided society. And with this disconnection comes a lack of empathy, comes a break in emotional connectivity. Now, I like to think that this code method, it's like a Swiss army knife that can be used in so many different ways Mm -hmm. to bring people together. In fact, I would love to get the 100 senators and the 435 congressmen to spend together in Congress 15 minutes, write your code, stand up, and read one line. I'll tell you what, I believe it will transform the political climate. Because when people stand, when people write their code, code, man, that's like a warrior. That is hero stuff. You are a hero. And you're not there to tear down a Republican or to tear down a Democrat. It's, I'm a hero and I'm here to serve and I'm here to make the world a a, a better place. And when I see it, when I see people do this in organizations, it's profound. It is so profound. And, you know, so many corporations talk about culture. Yeah, we want to create this embracing culture in, in, in our organization. And, and I'm going, yes, 
And where's the culture going to come from? Generally, it's going to come down in a pyramid structure from the CEO, and he's going to bring together a couple of team members, and we're going to try to write our mission statement, we're going to try to create our culture. And the, the like the academic definition, you know, culture is the unspoken assumptions that live within the walls of an organization. I go, no, I don't think it's that. I believe that culture can be defined as the spoken commitments that hang on the walls. So what I do when we do big corporate group, one line from each person, and then I create these beautiful graphics. So you have one line from each team member. I will volunteer. I will be the best I can be. I will bring people together. I will be a servant leader. And you know, create these graphics and they go up on the walls of the building. And it's just, it's, 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 it's wonderful to see because words have got great power, Ken. Words have got great power for good and words have got great power for evil. And the words that have the greatest power of all are our words. Let's talk a bit about having a personal purpose. We talk a lot about companies trying to, you know, seek a higher meaning than profit. What do you tell employees of the companies that you visit about having a personal purpose? Well, when people write their code, it's a personal purpose. It's a personal purpose statement. Write it down. Write it down and publicize it. Make yourself accountable to it. I mean, I have people coming up to me. I did this event for a cool group. It's called Vistage. It's, it's like a, a peer-to-peer network of, of, of CEOs. And a woman came up to me like, and she said, you know, a few years ago, my, uh, my husband came and he heard you speak and he told me about the code and I wrote my code and she pulls out a wallet. Here it is. I've had it in my wallet for two years. I spoke at an event for this cool company. They just hit a billion dollar valuation. So they're unicorn. Aussie guy, really cool dude. Uh, he invited me to speak. And when he introduced me, he said, hey, I want to tell all of you here. He said, seven years ago, I heard Sean speak at a YPO event. It's called Young Presidents Organization. He said, and he told us some stories, gave us his perspective. And then all of us wrote our codes, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. He said, I wrote my code and I started my company the next day. And that's why you all sitting here. So a story. It's, it's very cool to see and to be have developed this little structure. And where did it come from? It came from the ocean. It came from inspiring a group of young people who were coming down to the beach to solve an environmental problem. It was inspired by a problem. And it was inspired by the sea. And it was inspired by children. So it has a very organic development. And it's open source code. And, and I encourage people, do it, man. It's... Takes 15 minutes. John, you mentioned, and I mentioned at the top too, uh, launching two uh, clothing brands. And in 2003, the Surf Industry Manufacturers Association named you as its environmentalist of the year. When did you realize that doing good for the planet was core to who you are as a person? <laughs> you know, that's that's a super cool, a super cool question. So um, in 1984, I get a call from a guy. Hey, Sean, my name's Glenn Henning. I'm starting a new surfing environmental group, Malibu, very famous surfing breaks facing an environmental challenge. We'd love you to be our first member and our first 
ambassador. I was the number one surf in the world at the time. I mean, sure, I'd be stoked to. He said, but what we really need, we need a poster and a picture of you, and we need a copy for the ad. We need like a slug line. So I did this, picked up a pen, and I wrote five words. Do a good turn today. That was their first poster. Today, Surfride is the biggest environmental group in the world. And I like to think that, yeah, I wrote that do a good turn today, and it was a picture of me doing a bottom turn, which is a the fundamental maneuver in surfing. But I like to think that that was a start. It was a turning point for me. And like you say, where did it start from? That's when it started. Words have got amazing power. I mean, yes, my words help. I think they helped Surfrider Foundation, but they helped me too. They helped me define where I was going. You have said that it's every surfer's obligation to protect the world's oceans and coasts. Talk about some of the great work that you're doing in this particular area. You know, my my work is really um, based around uh, trying to highlight particular issues that surf rider might be having, you know, to try to give public visibility to issues, whether it's, you know, transportation authority wanting to build a freeway through a famous surfing break, uh, highlighting issues with plastic bag bans, uh, reducing uses of plastic, uh, encouraging uh, sustainable processes amongst uh, surfing companies and apparel manufacturer, perhaps using different materials, uh, when when I left Patagonia, my wife started our own brand, Solitude. We were the first surfing brand that really focused on environmentally friendly fabrics, uh, using good supplies. So it's more of a um, raising consciousness and awareness, mm. um, and and that's you know that's what I, I love to do. I mean, I love to to speak about environmentalism and about volunteering at schools and universities. I, I, every time I'm in a place, I always try to connect with a local chapter of Surfrider Foundation to sort of empower and inspire the volunteers. Mm-hmm. Because these are the, these are the, the volunteers are at the core of Surfrider Foundation. It's an activist organization, decentralized, that really wants to empower people to, to take care of their own beach in their, in their own way. And it's been very, very successful. We've got millions of activist members now around the around the world. We've got a you know pretty healthy budget, and then we've got like sixty five chapters in in the United States, and then many other chapters around the world. So it's great. It's just great to be involved with uh, uh, with it. And and then I've been involved with it, with a few other nonprofits. I'm currently involved with Santa Barbara Maritime Foundation, which is a beautiful little uh, foundation here. That's dedicated to preserving and protecting the Santa Barbara Channel, which is just this wonderful area in which um, which we live. I've been in the um, uh, Santa Barbara Boys and Girls Club. And and also what I, what I do is whenever I do a paid speaking engagement, I do a pro bono event for a school or university or community group or, or, or prison or rehab, PTSD survivors. And I love doing it. I'm going down tomorrow. I'm going down to El Salvador. And I'm speaking at a big bank and I'm speaking at a a YPO group. And then I'm speaking to a school. It's an adjunct to a regular school. And they just teach the kids three things. They teach them computer skills. They teach them English. And they teach them values. Two hours a day, a thousand kids. And then I'm also doing a talk for um, the Surfing Association. 
in El Salvador and, and I got to tell you Ken it is so volunteering it's so fulfilling it's fantastic I love it it inspires me and and when you see the light go off in a young boy or young girl's face and you know that you've triggered something there and I, I like to think man I got the best job in the world <laughs> <laughs> sure sounds it lastly Sean Everyone has their own impression of the surfer's life. Could you just really, what was it like at the height of your career? I had such a great life. It was so much fun traveling the world. There was this feeling of freedom. There's this feeling of uh, creating something new, of getting people, creating the sport, changing it from a lifestyle to a sport, but still keeping it a lifestyle too. And this, when I paddle out there and you're surfing at your very, very best and you're surfing a really dangerous, challenging wave and you're riding inside the spinning tunnel of water, riding inside the tube, that's what I was known for in surfing and I helped develop a whole new technique for riding inside the tube and you're riding inside the spinning tunnel of water and feels like time's expanded, like it's slowed down and, and there's this sensation of absolute silence but the sensation of incredible control and mastery and, and I used to feel that man I can curve this wall to my will this feeling of being absolutely connected and plugged into the universe but also this feeling of being connected mind body and soul and then having this surfboard that was just an extension of your feet and toes mm -hmm. it's just the most beautiful beautiful moment and feeling <laughs> terrific Sean thank you so much for joining me on Beyond Profit Ken, thanks for having me and and uh, for all your listeners out there. I'm hope, hoping that you enjoyed it and write your code, 12 lines. Every line beginning with our will. And I'll tell you what, do it with your family. Bring in your spouse, bring in your children, do it together and every single one of you stand up and read it to one another. And I'll tell you what, you'll create magic in your home. Thank you for that. And I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> To learn more about Sean's great work in his latest book, please visit seanthompson.com. That's S-H-A-U-N-T-O-M-S-O-N, seanthompson.com. And if you would like to recommend a topic or a speaker for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening.